Maso. Good morning. To make it just a very brief reference, very happy one, I've had some, uh, quite a number of exchanges with two of my principal neuroscientific or cognitive scientific collaborators, uh, and it's really been wonderful. After we get through the kind of the, oh, the noise, the haze created by the media, by journalists, uh, to actually connect with the scientists themselves and just finding how much common ground was very, very gratifying. I must say, really gratifying to see how much motivation and real yearning to understand what are the effects of meditation. So, enough on that. Today we move back to the settling the mind in its natural state. And what we're aiming at here is to be able to view our own minds and recall my response to um, Ilyana, the question about what is the mind. Well, the space of the mind and all the events, the subjective events, the emotions, desires, the more objective events, mental images, discursive thoughts, and so forth. Just that whole, that whole arena, that whole stage, that whole space, and all the events that arise within it, attending to that space. But we're seeking to view that space from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. Not just the conceptual mind observing the conceptual mind, but actually seeking to let our awareness descend down to the level of substrate consciousness and observe the mind from that perspective. And as we do so, watching the mind dissolve. Subjectively, watching your subjective mental processes of thinking and so forth dissolve into the substrate consciousness. Objectively, within this arena, observing the mental appearances, thoughts, images, and so forth dissolving into substrate so, in this regard, we're seeking to observe our own minds from an impersonal perspective, or would be better, a transpersonal perspective. Because the substrate consciousness is not a person. The substrate consciousness has no gender, has no language, has no personal history. It's not a person. Right? It's prior to personhood emerging. Personhood emerges out of the substrate consciousness every time you wake up out of deep sleep. A person emerges out of the substrate consciousness, and every time you fall asleep, back into deep sleep, the person dissolves back into the substrate consciousness. It's the womb out of and back into which personhood, this, the, the very well-configured sense of I am, out of which it emerges, into which it dissolves. So it's a type of transpersonal psychology. Transpersonal not in the normal sense of the term, which is generally operating out of a conceptual mind, trying to understand the mind transpersonally, but from within, from within the context of a conceptual mind, but rather transpersonal in the sense of viewing your own mind and watching your mind dissolve into a transpersonal state and viewing that from a transpersonal perspective. So it relates to the question raised uh, last night by Trish, and that is trying to understand, and I totally sympathize with it. I mean, I want to understand everything. I want to understand everything with my conceptual mind. I am voracious, but I'm not going to succeed. I'm not going to succeed because you can't really understand the substrate consciousness unless you're viewing it from the perspective of the substrate consciousness. You can't really understand Rigpa unless you're viewing it from the perspective of Rigpa. How is it, because your question was so good, how is it that your substrate consciousness could, in a manner of speaking, dissolve into the Rigpa and yet ever get it out again? You know, Well, that's not only true from the clear light of death and onto the bardo, but if you're alive and well, maybe you'll realize Rigpa in this lifetime, in which case your coarse mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, you break through the substrate consciousness to Rigpa, but how do you ever come out of Rigpa and say, hi, I, I want french fries and a, sh and a shake? Because that's definitely what you say after you've realized Rigpa. 
Well, we can't understand. The coarse mind can't wrap itself around it because we're not there. But if you've experienced, if you've experienced shamatha, experienced the substrate consciousness, and from that perspective, broken through it to rikpa, and then you come out of rikpa and you re- re-engage, you re-arouse your subtle and coarse mind, then you'll know. Then, that, then you'll have the answer. But you won't be able to articulate it to anybody who's not had the experience themselves. Right? So this is a type of transpersonal psychology and it relates in a very intriguing fashion to something I'll elaborate on a little bit more this afternoon, but I'm eager to get to meditation. And that is the yearning here. One aspect of the yearning here is to view reality from a perspective that is transhuman, that moves beyond the confines of an anthropocentric perspective that is simply human. To something that transcends the conceptual confines of the human mind. Clearly, that's what we're about, seeking to go from the coarse mind to subtle mind. We've already trans- transcended the, the confines of human conceptuality because you can't drag them down there with you, right? And then beyond that, of course, to rikpa, the inconceivable. In the midst of that, going into a non-conceptual realization of emptiness, absolutely transpersonal, trans-anthropocentric. Well, the Buddhists are not the only ones trying to do this. Of course, it was an aspiration before the Buddha came along in India, but there are strong reflections, but very interestingly complementary ones in the West. And that is in the history of science. We go back to Galileo. This will be very brief. But Galileo, you know, you know, you know brief, you know. <laughs> Alan Brief, hand and glove. <laughs> Galileo was trained as a contemplative as a youth. He was trained in a contemplative monastery and he wanted to spend the rest of his life there. But his dad wouldn't pay for it. And said, go get a job. Go get an education. So go become a doctor. Become a doctor. Galileo tried it, hated it. So he tried mathematics. That worked out better. Right? But he comes with that contemplative orientation of wanting to know the mind of God, because that's really what con- Christian contemplation is all about. Wanting to know the mind of God. But his dad wouldn't let him stay in the monastery. He wouldn't pay for it. So what does Galileo do? He says, well, you wouldn't let me look in. I'm going to look out first with the training in mathematics, and then he's looking outwards to the stars, the sun, sun, the moon, and planets. But he knows that he's looking with human eyes, and that means it's anthropocentric. If you are a frog scientist, I don't mean French, I mean an actual frog scientist, you know, you'd be seeing the planets from a froggy perspective, frogocentric, you know? If you are a butterfly, be butterfly-centric, and so forth. So he wanted to move beyond anthropocentric to view reality, view God's creation from God's perspective. But how can you do that when you're looking with your eyeballs? Because they're human eyeballs, not God's eyeballs. And then when you think about it, you're thinking in Latin, you're thinking in Italian. And although Italian is definitely a beautiful language, it's not quite divine. You know, it is human. And so he said, how do we get around this? How do we get beyond the anthropocentricity of our human senses and of our human languages, whether it's Italian, it's, it's Latin, whatever it may be? And then the light bulb went on, having been trained as a mathematician and knowing some of the spirit, some of the, the legacy of Pythagoras, saying that reality fundamentally boils down to geometry. Pythagoras wasn't a Christian. Galileo was a very devout Christian. So he takes Pythagoras' idea and then he plunks it over in Christianity and he says, got it. God thinks in the language of mathematics because that is a transhuman 
non-anthropocentrical language. It transcends. There's nothing human. It has no gender. It's not French. It's not Italian. It's not ancient. It's not modern. It's the language of nature. But he said it's the language of God. And God spoke the world into existence by way of mathematics. So therefore, if a scientist, man created an image of God, if a scientist could just think in the language of God, then one, he could transcend the anthropocentricity of his physical senses and at, and at least conceptually view reality from God's own conceptual perspective, which is the perspective of pure mathematics. And that launched modern science. And it leaves you with a conceptual understanding, still conceptual, but it's transhuman. Because mathematics is just not human. It, it's beyond human, right? And so that's where science comes to its culmination, physics in particular. You've, you've, come, you've come to the full flowering of physics when you can lay out the equations. And you publish them, they're peer-reviewed. You say, you see? Look, there are the equations of special relativity. There's the equations of general relativity. There's the Schrodinger wave equation of quantum mechanics. Here is applied to quantum cosmology. So Wheeler and a colleague of his... Uh, wrote out the equations for the u universe from a, from a quantum perspective. And it's, of course, mathematical. And that's the way things are, conceptually. So it culminates in conceptuality. Here, with settling the mind in its natural state, we seek to understand the mind, reality from the inside out, starting with the space of the mind and then extending outwards from a transconceptual, a transpersonal perspective. It's kind of cool. That's my conclusion. So let's meditate and stop talking. Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and for a little while calm the discursive mind, this ever so anthropocentric conceptual mind, by way of mindfulness of breathing.
let your eyes be open. And bring the full force of your mindfulness in non-discursive, non-conceptual, bare attention to this elliptical field of shapes and colors. In a purely witnessing mode, simply be aware of what, what arises within this visual field. In the scene, let there be just the scene. your eyes close and turn the full force of your mindfulness to the auditory field, the domain of sound and in the herd let there be just the herd. Direct your focus now single-pointedly to the space of the body and whatever tactile events of earth, water, fire, and air arise within this somatic field. In the felt, let it be just the felt. to the space of the body and whatever tactile events arise within it without distraction, without grasping. In Tibetan, Mayeng Zime.
And now let your eyes be at least partially open. But unlike before, let your gaze be vacant and direct the full force of your mental awareness just to the space of the mind. Whatever events arise within that space and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. Again, if you are relatively new at this practice, you may find it helpful in the early phases to deliberately generate a discursive thought or a mental image. Focus on it single-pointedly. Allow it to fade. Dissolve back into the space of the mind. And then keep your attention right where it was. You've placed a marker in the space of the mind. And you know you have sustained your marker there if, as soon as the next thought or image arises, you immediately detect it. You observe its nature. And you simply let it be. illuminating the space of your mind with the natural clarity of your own awareness.
know you are in the flow of the practice, when your awareness is experienced as being still, even while thoughts and other mental events come and go. View the activities of the mind from the stillness of your awareness. Sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. As soon as grasping occurs, you're contaminating the process with your own subjective desires, hopes, fears, delusions, and of course with your concepts. Once again, view the space of the mind and its contents from this transpersonal, this conceptually silent but luminous mode of awareness, monitoring the flow with introspection, applying the remedies as needed. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Lodasu. In the seven-point mind training, a text about a thousand years old, tracing back to Atisha, an extraordinary Indian master, right after the teachings on emptiness, then after the formal meditation, then the guidance is in Tibetan, Tunsam Gyume Kyeburaja. In between sessions, act as an illusory being. An illusory being. So we can try some facsimile of that in between sessions. And that is instead of grasping onto my body, my mind, I want, I don't want, kind of reifying, substantiating our personhood here, moving about as a little chunky piece of matter in the physical world. In between sessions, as much as you can, as much as you wish to, just bring that quality of awareness, this kind of transpersonal quality of awareness to whatever arises, to the visual, the tactile, the auditory, the mental, on occasion, the olfactory and the gustatory. And just be present. Just be present in, in all of those six domains. Let what is being presented simply be accepted as what is presented without all of the personal overlays, conceptualization, and so forth. In another text, it might have been the first text I was ever taught in Tibetan, parting from the four cravings, a, a, a true classic from the Sakya tradition. One of the four partings is this one. Zimba Jungna Tawa Me. When grasping occurs, there's no view. There's no view of reality. No authentic view of reality, as long as grasping is there. Because we're contaminating the very experience itself with craving, with hostility, and with reification. So, abide to the best of your ability in the view. Viewing what's given as what is given. Let's try it.